Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. The podcast is presented by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Handwoven, Piecework, and Little Looms magazines. Find us online at longthreadmedia.com. Trainway Silks is where weavers, spinners, knitters, and stitchers find the silk they love. Select from the largest variety of silk spinning fibers, silk yarn, and silk threads and ribbons at trainwaysilks.com. You'll discover a rainbow of colors thoughtfully hand-dyed in Colorado. Love natural? Trainway's array of wild silks provide choices beyond white. If you love silk, you'll love Trainway Silks, where superior quality and customer service are guaranteed. I'm your host, Longthread Media co-founder, Anne Merrow. Rangina Hamidi is an Afghan-American woman. After finishing university in the United States, she moved to Afghanistan in 2003, where she founded Kandahar Treasure. She served as Minister of Education and returned to the United States a few years ago, where she's currently teaching in a graduate program. Rangina, thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for having me. So I'm going to start off by asking you, what is Kandahar Treasure? Wow. (laughs) By definition, we call uh, or we say that Kandahar Treasure is a social enterprise based, owned, and operated by women in Kandahar, Afghanistan. And when we say social enterprise, we refer to the fact that it's not an NGO. So we're not dependent on grants and funds provided by foundations or donor agencies. The social enterprise allows us to take pride in the fact that we are producing and making beautiful handmade products that we then present to the market and the sales of the market enable us to run our operation. So I think in a nutshell, if that was a long enough description of what Kandahar Treasure is, this is how we define Kandahar Treasure. And just in the day-to-day operations, Kandahar Treasure is an organization of women who are who are stitching. Is that right? That's exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Carrying on stitches that for centuries have taken place um, all over the world, women have stitched historically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in particular, the region where we're working in Kandahar, because women don't really, not that women don't have a public role, they've never had a public role historically. Women have silently and beautifully always stitched to pass their day, to create beauty, to gift beauty to other family members, oftentimes not having the financial liberty that women across the globe might have. Women in Kandahar have always utilized their skill of embroidery as a means to create beautiful products that they can then give to their loved ones and friends and family. So before Kandahar Treasure began, women were mostly doing this at home. Were they doing it by themselves or just with their families? It, it really depends. Um, the traditional family structure of a, a typical home in Afghanistan, particularly in the South, uh, is in living with extended family. And extended family could sometimes mean as much as having 60 people or 70 people living under one roof, uh, men and women, of course, that is, and, and lots of children. So oftentimes you will have women living with, before marriage, with their mother and multiple siblings and cousins and aunts and grandparents. And then after marriage, the lifestyle doesn't really change that much because the majority of women, again, marry from a large family into a large family. So they might leave their sisters and aunts and cousins behind, but then they go and start living with sister-in-laws and 
cousin-in-laws and, you know, the children of those people and, and a mother-in-law and maybe multiple sets of mother-in-laws because uh, polygamy is also practiced in Afghanistan. And so women have always been part of a larger community at home. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's never really been a space predominantly and only dedicated to women in the home privately for themselves and there's and just their immediate children. The most that a woman might have in traditional Kandahar setting is her own bedroom, which then belongs to her, her husband and her children. And sometimes she might just be the owner of that one room for up to six or seven children. And only then when it becomes physically impossible to occupy that many people in one room, might she have the liberty to either build an additional room in the same premise if it's possible and mm-hmm. or get the liberty to move out and kind of create their own space. Uh, but so women have always lived together with other women. And when you asked, do they create or work on their own or with a group of women, by the nature of how they've always lived, it's impossible to work alone. So they're always mm-hmm. around other women uh, not right. by choice, but by the nature of how they live. And so one of the things that Kandahar Treasure does, though, you mentioned that people were doing it, women were doing it to give, and now there's a commercial element. So women are creating something that they can sell to someone they've never met. Exactly. Yes, that that is definitely a new element to the craft that we have added as Kandahar Treasure. And quite honestly, I think when I first set out to create or to make Kandahar Treasure a social enterprise, I did not have the knowledge that I have now almost 20 years later, and neither did the women who were creating it. Uh, when I went back to Afghanistan in 2003, and um, the organization that I started working with had invited me or had hired me to work with economic empowerment opportunities for women, I looked around and I wanted to see what was feasible and possible. And I knew even back then when I was young that the cultural sensitivities of the environment in which I had invited myself back to would not allow or would not be comfortable with the idea of women coming out of home to go to a production site or a factory or something where women would be gathering to create products or or work on a service to market to the local community to generate income. But the thing that I knew, you know, immediately was These women are incredibly skilled in this beautiful embroidery uh, that I'd actually grown up with. My mother always adored herself with Kandahari embroidery uh, growing up in Pakistan and America. And so I said, well, why don't we just work on that? Something the women already know. They can be at home. We're not proposing anything out of the norm. And so we started providing work to the women inside their homes to produce work pieces. Interestingly enough, Initially, I think the women were much smarter than me because they, they had done this before for other projects. You know, since the mid-1980s, all throughout that war that ended officially with Russia in 1989, and then the civil war that lasted another four years, and then the first reign of Taliban in the mid-1990s, up until 2001, the international community was providing some sort of economic building opportunities for women. And women had always used their embroidery as a skill to participate. But what had happened in all those years, because nobody really focused on marketing their product, the quality of their craftsmanship had really become bad. And so Mm -hmm. when I started to first receive the pieces that the women would complete, and I would compare it to the image that I had in my head of what my mother used to wear, 
I would ask them bluntly. I said, well, this is not what Hamak is supposed to look like. And then the women were confused too, because for the first time they were being questioned. Like in a, a weird way, they almost were surprised by mm-hmm. why did I care about the quality? Because nobody mm-hmm. before me ever asked or questioned the quality of their work. But even as a nonprofit organization project, the first initial years, I started focusing on, no, I'm not going to settle for anything less. I know you can do this better. Mm-hmm. And I will only pay you for pieces that are of quality standards. So kind of push them to stop producing mediocre work. And immediately, I didn't, I didn't even have to train them. They knew what good, they could tell the difference between good work, best work and mediocre work. Mm-hmm. And when we asked for it, they produced and they delivered. So we'll have a picture of the embroidery you're talking about in the show notes. But can you just describe for folks what the word you used, I think, was hamak? What is that? What characterizes it? What does it look like? So hamak, we haven't been able to really academically, you know, dig down and define what exactly hamak, the word, means. From the language and the conversations that we've had with various women, both Farsi-speaking and Pashto-speaking, ham as a word means raw. And mm. ak is usually given to when you when you add the word ak to it, oftentimes you're like, not that you're belittling it, but you're kind of making it cute and you're making it pretty. And so hamak, raw, pretty, it absolutely makes no literal sense in English. Mm-hmm. But from the co- many conversations we've had, I think we can- concluded to the fact that the the thread that the embroidery is done with, it's unspun. So it's raw silk thread. And mm-hmm. so that's where the shine comes in when people uh, do the, the geometric embroidery on the fabric. The shine is a result of the unspun nature of the silk thread. So I'm thinking historically, that's probably where it derived from. But again, the women who've been embroidering this, the women of, of Afghanistan, the women of Kandahar in particular, you know, education, research, writing, history, that, that's not something we do. And so the, it was very, very difficult to find any literature ahead of us to be able to link where the root of this word came from. But I can't, I'm not going to give it a new name if that's what the verbal name that sure. the women have given this work to. But what does it look You mentioned that there's a shine to it and it's geometric. If I were to look at a piece of this embroidery, you know, how, how would I spot it? What does it look like? So the closest in terms of what it looks like, so it's not a cross stitch. It's more a satin stitch is what I've learned mm-hmm. to the uh, more universal language of stitching. And the designs that are embroidered on a f- base fabric without prints. So usually, almost always the hamak embroidery is embroidered on a plain base fabric. But the requirement for a plain base fabric is that the warp and the weft have to be perpendicular, 90 mm-hmm. degrees angle, because the eye of the embroiderer has to be able to see that weave so that as she stitches the geometric designs through a satin stitch style, the various counts of stitches that she makes then ends up creating this beautiful geometric shape embroidered onto a base fabric. So it's a flat base, but it's kind of a little bit embossed because now you have a thread going in the backside and in the front side of the embroidery. 
but you create this beautiful geometric flat surfaced embroidery that can maybe look like natural elements such as leaves, for example, trees, flowers, but they don't have the curves because mm -hmm. the embroidery mm -hmm. cannot allow, geometric designs will not allow the women to have curved finishes. It's always straight lines and straight boxes and, and borders. So oftentimes the women will create, you know, they begin with creating the borders that need to be filled. That's the first step of the process. And then they go in to complete and fill in the borders that have already been shaped by that uh, simple stitch of a satin stitch that they've created the borders with. But this is freehand. This is not something where there's it, like a, a drawing on the canvas no, that you just no. stitch into. <laughs> the women never, ever use any pen um, or any form of mark to guide them. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, traditionally, it has always been a free form. You just you, you might look at a design and re, reproduce it on your uh, fabric. Um, but oftentimes, you know, the creative young minds, they also create their own designs. So that's where the creativity nature of the work comes from. But interestingly, as we mentioned in the book that we've uh, written, uh, Embroidering Within Boundaries, during the war period uh, where many Afghans were forced to flee their country to the neighboring country of Pakistan, the Pakistani embroidery technique, Pakistan and India, often has embroideries that are more natural elements. So the flower, the floral motifs or the animal mm -hmm. motifs, which are drawn in and then embroidered. And the Afghan women were kind of inspired by that. So what they started to do is they would start drawing in a, a petal of a flower mm -hmm. or a leaf or, or some bird or whatever. And because they're not skilled in drawing these natural elements, they would have these crooked <laughs> elements that they would have drawn, you know, kind of put the border around it, but inside it still fill it with beautiful geometric hammock embroidery. And so when we were refugees, you know, myself as a child, my, I remember my mother always not happy with what the women were doing creatively mm -hmm. uh, because she always liked the traditional classic designs of just having the geometric shapes. And as a child, I did not know that. I just remember my mother always talking about that. So when I went back in 2003 and started working with the women, I did see a little bit of the elements of the Pakistani-inspired uh, drawn-out embroideries that they had brought back with them to Afghanistan. But I knew that even the locals didn't like it. Mm, and internationally, mm. when I started the first year or two, started to you know take products, various different products and designs to either the U.S. market or other markets, there was almost always a natural inclination to go to the just geometric design rather than the hand-drawn design. And so over time, very naturally, very quickly, we just told the ladies, this has a better market. Mm -hmm. Why are you wasting your time doing something that is not a natural for you? Mm -hmm. And so then it died down. And even to this day, 20 years, almost 20 years later, um, nobody's doing the drawn-in designs anymore. Hmm. Now, with, with the influx of refugees back into Pakistan after the Taliban takeover, it'll be an interesting see to an interesting thing to look at and see whether women pick that up again mm -hmm. in the refugee communities. But only time can tell. So I've been asking you a lot of questions about the embroidery, and of course, I'm fascinated by that. But I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about how you came to start Kandahar Treasure. When I first heard you speak, you mentioned that around the time that you started working on this project, 
you said something like, the whole world said that they wanted to do something to help Afghan women, but I didn't see anybody actually doing it. So I decided to go do a project like that. And I'm totally paraphrasing, but I wonder if you could kind of tell me how you how you came, what was your journey to creating this project? Um, that's, a, that's a beautiful question. And I hope I can uh, succinctly give you an answer. I actually grew up loving craft and creativity. I have self-taught myself how to sew. I know how to do embroidery, but I, it's too difficult to find the time to do it. Although I enjoy it, I paint, I draw. So I've always had the crafty side of me. And it was funny because when I was in college getting my degree, I was supposed to be a pre-med student and then decided to not pursue my medical career, or medical educational journey. I changed to study religious studies and women's studies as my double major in college. I remember my cousin, a male cousin, who knew my crafty side. And I had I was visiting a home one day and then he said to me, he's like, why are you wasting your time with all these philosophies and ideologies? Because of course I'm studying religion and women's studies. It's all about theory and ideologies, right? He's like, you're so talented. Go and make yourself a nice designer or you know, start a business doing crafts. And I was so offended by that <laughs> remark because I was like, you know, as a feminist, young feminist, I was like, how dare he? A man telling me what to do <laughs> as a young woman. But soon after I graduated college, September 11th happened, and then Afghanistan was on the radar um, mm. all over the world because the U.S. and NATO decided to go to Afghanistan. And so there was almost this natural calling for me with roots in that country. I was born in Afghanistan. I was born in Kandahar. But I had left the country at age four when my parents you know, left the country after the Russian invasion in the early 1980s. And so this natural call to go and return back and help in the development process. So the whole world was going. The whole world was headed to Kabul, which is the capital city of Afghanistan. And because I was not you know, Afghanistan has two different languages, Pashto, which is a language that the majority of the Pashtun tribe speak, which is my mother's tongue, and then Dari, which is more the language of the government and that of the northern Afghanistan. I did not know Dari so well. So naturally, I said, if I'm going to go back as an Afghan on this new mission with the international community to go back and help with the development process, I want to go to a place where I can naturally communicate mm -hmm with the community that I'll be working with. So I chose Kandahar because it was just a natural thing to do. And I had ex extended family there. Mm -hmm. uh, so my aunts and cousins um, lived in Kandahar still. And so it also helped me have a base to return because I was going all by myself. And so initially I went with this idea of I'm a development worker, I'm a feminist, I'm going to go work on women's rights, and I'm going to help change the lives of all the women and girls that I'll be working with. And little did I know that I was actually going to do that with the craft and the, you know, the skill sets that were near and dear to me, but that were also very much a, an expression of the women that I was working with, working with crafts. And so for 20 years, I've really been working on helping Afghan women, uh, which, you know, politically speaking, has become a very political issue because remember 2001 remember the image that was constantly being played on television and print media it was the afghan women because we america wanted to go and liberate the afghan women from the oppression that she was living under the taliban unfortunately 20 years later 
you know, those same women were in a, in a very uh, sensitive way, they were left behind back to the hands, kind of thrown back to the hands of the very people that America fought against in 2001. And the Taliban took over in 2021. And women are now living under consistent decrees against women that are coming out, whether it's banning education or banning women from working. And some women have called the action as almost erasing women from all form of public life. I look at things in terms of I know that there's a lot of problems and issues on the ground in Afghanistan today, but I also have invested 20 years of my life and dedication to the very women that I've been working with. Mm -hmm. And the only place that the Taliban do not seem to have a problem with women working is the space of entrepreneurship, business, home industries, crafts, things that women have been doing for centuries. And Instead of focusing on all the restrictions that the Taliban have put on women in the society, which are many, and I'm not belittling them, and there's nothing I can do sitting here as an individual American citizen now in the United States, I would rather choose to focus on how do you continue developing women in spite of the fact that the Taliban are back in power and the way to do it is through their crafts, through their needles, through their threads, because Kandahar Treasure, believe it or not, is still operating. Women are still coming and producing, taking work to their homes to finish and complete and bring and get paid and get new work. And if that's a space and an area and a path where we can continue to help women create different futures for themselves and their daughters, then let's keep doing it. And that's where my focus and energy has come to. So it was a long story of telling you who I am and why I've done what I'm doing. Continuing. No, that's an incredibly important story. And I, I just want to help people understand what the structure of the project is. You alluded to the fact that women are, you know, leaving home, going to some place where they can pick up a project and take it home to work on it. And then eventually that makes its way into a, a market. Exactly. And so to just tell you how we run our operation day to day. So there is a headquarter facility. Mm -hmm. It's a rental place. Um, and we're trying to raise enough funding to get a permanent location for the women so that they can own and, and work off of that location uh, for many, many years to come and centuries to come, hopefully. But the women come to this specific headquarter where a group of women do come as full-time staff, meaning they come. it's their job to come in the morning, be there, be present, do the work required and the work necessary to prepare the pieces. And what the preparation entails is measuring the product. So for example, our best-selling items are shawls or scarves, and they're in four different sizes. It's, it's incredible because the, I think the audience needs to understand that when women are not literate in the sense of being able to read and understand measurements. Mm -hmm. Whenever in the past we would give, say, a bolt of fabric and tell the women, make 10 shawls or 10 scarves, scarves in a certain size, I kid you not, we would have 10 different sizes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so when you bring a product to an international market that is looking for standards, they want specific sizes, it was impossible to control that. And so we actually kind of created this headquarter space 
to be able to train a certain group of women who would cut in the same sizes, who would wash with one detergent, um, because we also found when the women were washing the pieces in their homes, some would use good detergents to clean it. Others would use detergents that had bleach in it. Mm. And so you would have a product that was beautifully done, but completely destroyed because the bleach would discolor the thread or the fabric. And so the nature of in what society and what kind of a society we work in, we were forced to create this headquarter where the measuring, the washing, the finishing of all of our products are done in-house, the tailoring. Mm -hmm. So we don't give any work to be tailored outside of our facility. But the embroidery is all completely done in the homes of women. And it's different styles and types of embroideries that women do. It's not just the traditional hammock, which is the majority. But uh, women in Kandahar have also had the skill of doing embroidery with a mirror. Mm. So it's more the nomadic, Kuchi-inspired, which is more regional. So India, Pakistan has the mirror work, but Afghans as well. And there are some women who don't know how to do hammock, but they know how to work with the mirror or they know how to do that free stitch and where you can draw a shape of of an element and then they fill it up. Some women, the elderly women whose eyesight won't allow them to do embroidery anymore. They actually are the ones that uh, complete the tassels on the scarves. Mm -hmm. So because these are bolts of fabrics that we buy and we cut them in the measurement that we want them to, but the production team identifies the mark where the tassels would end and, and start. And then there's a group of women that come and just take these fabric pieces and just pull the threads out on the tassels and then make the tassels and bring it back to us. So a piece of our uh, scarf is not just completed by one woman uh, with the embroidery. The embroidery is done by one woman, but the finishing is done by another woman. The tassels are done by another woman. And then the washing and the ironing and then preparing it to package for marketing is done by another woman. So each piece of our product goes through multiple hands Mm -hmm. and multiple talents uh, that we've identified through our network. And that's, that's the process of what happens every day. And when women complete the work that they're assigned to, that they take home, when they complete the work, they bring it on the day. We pay them for that finished process of work that they've completed Mm -hmm. and then hand them over new work. So unlike other cooperatives that I have seen or heard of or or know of uh, globally, the women cannot afford to wait for the product to be sold, to be paid. Mm -hmm. So we, we as an enterprise we actually pay the women on the spot when she brings the completed work that she was assigned to and give her new work because her life must go on. Sometimes a product might wait for months in our channel of going to completion mm-hmm. and then going to the market. And then particularly now with the situation that we're in, you know, it can easily take months for a product to just leave after it's completely finished from Kandahar to arrive to a location here in the States Mm -hmm. and then sell it. So a woman can't afford to wait two or three months for her piece to be sold to get paid. And that's, I think, the added value that we as an organization provide that the women would not be able to do on their own. So where are they sold? You mentioned that they're mostly sold in the U.S. Where is the market for them? 
There's actually, they're sold in country. So mm -hmm. luckily we do have a little shop that we've rented in Kandahar city where yes, the sales are not great, but they're significant. And even in spite of the economic collapse after the fall of the Republic and the Taliban taking over, people are still buying little, but still they're buying. So that's our local market. Internationally, because I'm now in the US and most of our partners who have worked with us in the past 20 years are based in the US. The major organizations that are supporting us still are the International Folk Art Market, which happens every summer. And so we've been accepted and we will be presenting and selling our goods, our women's goods in July of 2023. So for the listeners who will be coming to Santa Fe, please stop by our booth. The other uh, major partner is IBU Foundation or IBU Movement, I-B-U Movement. It's a Charleston, South Carolina-based organization founded by a wonderful, powerful woman named Susan Walker, who has an online shop, but also a physical, beautiful shop in Charleston. And so they actually design their own products exclusive to their customers and we produce, our women produce them. So they, they sell quite a good amount of our products on their website and in their store. The third partner is Global Goods Partners, which is a New York based online shopping facility to support women, women's initiatives or women entrepreneurs like, like Kandahar Treasure. These are the three main partners that we've continued to work with among others. But the other good news is that we are actually, as we speak, working on an online shop for Kandahar Treasure to be opened soon so that anybody across the world who's interested in buying our product to support our women will be able to do that. I can't tell you exactly when that will actually happen because I'm getting back to learning all the legal formalities of working and starting <laughs> uh, work in the United States. And so we're just going through that. And I'm hoping that by either the summer or late summer, uh, we will be able to have our own online shop as well. You know, you wrote a book with Thrums Books called Embroidering Within Boundaries a few years ago. And it occurs to me that that term embroidering within boundaries means so many things. I mean, initially, it seems like, oh, clearly, this is a metaphor for women's role in roles in the nation of Afghanistan. But then there's also the fact that the way that the stitching is done is that borders are created and then filled in. And then there's the fact that in a way you have this boundary of we're going to make all the shawls the same size and shape. So that's its own boundary. So there are different forms of creativity that come out of these frameworks, some of which are huge restrictions. But it seems like the women you work with are kind of finding their own ways to work within them, both through their art and through their lives. You know, and, that, and that's the perfect analogy of what Afghanistan is all about. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I actually visited Afghanistan this past December and January. So I took a 20 day trip, 10 days in December, 10 days in January of 2023. And to the surprise of many of my friends and colleagues and family members, they were shocked initially to learn that I was willing to go and risk my life mm -hmm. going back to Afghanistan now particularly because I did serve a prominent position before the fall. And so security and risk-wise, they were not sure how I would be received. But quite honestly, my return back for 20 days to the ground, to, the, to Kandahar, to the women, proved to me that in spite of what we're how we're analyzing the situation of Afghan women 
in Afghanistan from thousands of miles away through the lens of our own cultural understanding and our own historical and, and current events and political understanding. The women of Afghanistan, in spite of living in very, very harsh restrictions, they're figuring things out for themselves. They are maneuvering in ways that you and I sitting here cannot think of. Mm-hmm. You know, Kandahar as a province and as a, as a region has always been a conservative hub of Afghanistan. That, that's historically the fact that I wish I could change, but it's not going to change anytime soon. And so when we talk about the burqa, you know, the famous burqa that women wear, the reality is that from 2001 until 2021, no woman in Kandahar ever lifted her burqa up. Mm-hmm. Women were still wearing and operating and coming out of their homes under a burqa. Kabul and other major cities across the country, that was a different scenario. It was a different story. Afghanistan is a diverse nation. It's not one size fits all mentality. So the women were coming out, again, still continually wearing their burqa, which is a boundary, Mm -hmm. right? Because they have to put this boundary on their bodies, on their head, down to their feet, to be able to to roam around the public space. And yet within that boundary, they're able to still go, you know, come to Kandahar Treasures facility, go to the local bazaar, go to their family and friends' homes that might be in other parts of the city, still take local and public transportation as their means to move around. Are they being harassed? Are they being ridiculed? Are they being forced to do certain things that you wouldn't normally in other societies? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But that's that's always been kind of the lifestyle that women have globally lived. Right. You know, and I and, and I think while yes, we can focus on the boundaries as a restrictive force and kind of see and create pity for these women to say, oh my God, they're so restricted. They have no freedom of movement. They have no freedom of choice, of creativity. And and that's one way of looking at it. But the other way is the cultural realities and the historical realities of who these women are and living in what context, where there are strict borders. And we have used and written about the analogy that one small mistake or misstep outside of the boundary could be fatal to the woman who's who's risking it if she's not smart enough about it, right? But at the same time, let's help women who are in those environments, in these restricted environments, because we can't change the boundaries for them necessarily as an outside society. Mm -hmm. Only time, education, resources, development, progress, you know, coming from within the culture, those are elements that can redraw boundaries. Mm-hmm. We've learned in 20 years of U.S. involvement that boundaries drawn from an outside perspective mm-hmm. are rejected with a backlash probably uglier than, you know, than, than if they're created from within. And so I think I like to focus on the boundaries as an element of understanding limits. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the women of Afghanistan do know their limits, but let's celebrate how they use their creativity within the limits that they know to produce and to do things that work for them. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, what they do, how they do it is impacting them and their future 
um, as much as we can sit here and cry about it and, and lament about it and feel bad about it, it is not going to help the women if we just focus on the negativity, but instead let's focus on how we can support the women within the limits, within the boundaries that they know that they're living in. It makes me think about the phrase acceptance and how in some ways we often think about acceptance meaning approval, but sometimes it's just acknowledgement. Like you're I just think that's a perfect word. Acknowledging that this is the way things are and, and seeing how you can make things better. Now, you sort of alluded to having had a prominent role. Kandahar Treasure is very important and it's also on a scale that maybe is less visible to the world at large than the other role that you had, which was Minister of Education. <laughs> That's a <laughs> sort of a global scale role. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And many people questioned even as they were surprised with me being appointed as Minister of Education, like, how do you go from creating beautiful uh-huh scarves, embroideries to becoming a minister of education. There was a very short transition period in which I'm blessed with one daughter Mm -hmm. and she was turning seven and I was in Kandahar working with these women and the motherly instincts and the feminist within me started to become really frantic about what I was doing to the future of my own daughter. Mm -hmm. Working with hundreds of women who, in spite of us pushing them to educate their daughters, and some did, some some continued to do it in in their small ways. I knew that I didn't have control over other families' children, Mm -hmm. but I was responsible for the future of my own daughter. Mm -hmm. And I could not afford to have her be raised in an environment where she didn't go to school. So the selfish, I guess I can call it a selfish (laughs) motherly call, forced me to make the move from Kandahar to Kabul to seek better educational opportunity for my daughter because I just could not find anything in Kandahar. Mm -hmm. Even though I wanted to create it, but I was not skilled in how do you run a school? How do you start a school? How do you manage a school? And My good friend had this idea of starting an international school in Kabul for families just like myself who had come from abroad, who who knew and understood the meaning and value of good quality education, but who didn't want to leave, who didn't want to leave Afghanistan. And so with his help, he actually recruited me to become the first principal of this international school in which my daughter was the first student. And so I, even though I was still supporting Kandahar Treasure from afar, from Kabul, the infrastructure and the system was put in place where the women can, could now run their own operation. I moved personally to allow my daughter to go and start school. And then before I knew it, the president had heard about the progress and the development we had made with our school. And he apparently liked the vision in which I ran the organization, the, the, the international school. And he reached out to me and offered me the position to join his cabinet. Of course, immediately I rejected. (laughs) And that was, you know, he was surprised because I don't think he ever got a rejection from someone that he offered (laughs) to come become my minister. But I rejected because I knew internally and deep down that I was not a politician. I had never worked in politics. And I, and then to take such a huge responsibility, uh, this was no, no, 
no easy thing. And I did not think that I wanted to do that. But after a week of going back and forth and having many conversations, not just with him, but a lot of friends and family and colleagues that I trusted and valued, we came to the conclusion that I was in my early 40s as a woman in Afghanistan, you know, in this global platform of people promoting and asking women to join leadership positions because we think we know it better, right? Mm -hmm. As women, <laughs> I kind of looked at myself and assessed myself that if not now, then when? Mm -hmm. And yes, education was not necessarily my expertise, but then I started to put myself in this big picture of all the men who were in politics at that time, how many of them were actually experts in the fields that they were running? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Quite honestly, I mean, and, and I looked at just the Ministry of Education for, for 20 years. So from 2001 until 2020, and looked at the backgrounds of all the men who had led the institution for those 20 years, none of them had an educational background. And in terms of qualifications, I was no less than any of them. The fact that I was a woman, you know, oftentimes there's this, this gender dynamics uh, around positions of power. So I just, I prayed upon it. I asked my closest friends and family for their opinions and they all supported me in taking the leap of faith. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what I did. Uh, so I finally accepted the position, which made the president very, very happy. And uh, I served very, very dedicatedly for exactly 14 months until August 15, 2021. And in the little time, and 14 months is very short in a political position like that, sure. uh, particularly in Afghanistan, where things were chaotic, there was a war going on, there was, I mean, there was, every single second of the time that we lived, even before the, the ministry, but once I became minister, it was more obvious that I was a bigger target because the elements that were fighting against the government, you know, suicide attacks were becoming more and more daily. People have been so innovative in creating me different means of violence or different means of perpetuating violence. And so the, the latest trend right before the fall was the small magnetic bombs that would be stuck to the engine of a car. Mm -hmm. And then once the start, car starts driving, I don't know if it was remote control or not, and then you blow up. And, and so that was a threat that I was taking every single day of the 14 months that I served. But nevertheless, I am proud. I can only say that I'm proud of dedicating fully, cleanly, and passionately to serving the children. And, you know, the, 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 the focus on education is still not far from taking my expertise or my work with Kandahar treasure and the embroidery because women's lives in societies like Afghanistan, um, and I wish Afghanistan was the only place where women's lives were in trouble. Mm -hmm. Education is the foundational tool that will bring about the change mm -hmm. to women and men. And so taking on this role of education, my vision really was to, of course, there was a technicality of running the thousands of schools and the you know hundreds of thousands of teachers and students and millions of students that we had to provide the service to. But the bigger vision was, a changed Afghanistan will result from educating 
our children differently today. Mm-hmm. And part of that transformation included f- focusing on women and girls, but also teaching boys and men that women are active citizens of society who can play active roles in your society. And so education would allow us to do that. Unfortunately, everything changed. And so the dreams and the visions that we created as a team uh, for this uh, ministry role that, yes, made me quite public, but very popular too, because the audience that was all of a sudden receiving me both nationally and internationally mm-hmm. were surprised by my very innovative ideas. Mm-hmm. I'm a creative person and I wanted to be creative in the sector of politics, in the sector of education. And I also learned in that process that while entrepreneurship activities or entrepreneurial activities like Kandahar Treasure allows me the liberty to be creative and open and and create things. And if we don't like it, you just throw it and you go do something else. Politics, unfortunately, is not as forgiving. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. So you've alluded to the fact that a lot of your growing up and education was here in the U.S. where women can pretty much wear whatever they want. We do have certain gender expectations, but women can pretty much wear whatever they want. So you didn't have a law telling you what to wear. And when you were working in Afghanistan, you mentioned that in Kandahar, you know, people have, women have been wearing the burqa continuously. At some point, you chose a piece of cloth. You chose to cover your hair. And I'm just kind of curious about that, both in terms of, hey, here's a piece of cloth that you take with you every day, but also making a choice to put on what, I mean, I, from a completely American perspective, see as a restriction, but maybe you don't see it that way. Um, I'm actually glad you asked this question because I don't want to philosophize on life and the meaning of life and the choices we make and how that, Mm -hmm. how the choices lead us to where we end up being. But I actually decided to cover my head or start to wear the scarf, put a piece of cloth on my head and my hair in the summer between my second year and third year of college. And remember, I was studying women's studies and religious studies. The reason I put the scarf on was not because of my religious studies influence. It was more my, the courses and the literature I was reading in my women's studies classes, Mm. which made me question as a Muslim woman. So I'm born a Muslim to a Muslim family. And it's it's interesting because the conversation around Islam or being Muslim in the world, particularly in the West today, is that Islam is created as this very violent religion that promotes terrorism and, and oppression and control. And yet I never grew up knowing those elements of my religion because... Nobody in my family was controlling, not my dad, not my mom, not my, you know, like we, we didn't have what the narrative was teaching. My mother covered, but my sisters didn't. My grandmother covered, but we thought, oh, she's covering because she's old. And yet my father never forced us to cover. Mm-hmm. So when I came to college and I started taking women's studies classes and I started to read literature that was very disturbing because it portrayed the Muslim woman, the covered Muslim woman, as a oppressed, immobile, quiet, voiceless, 
completely controlled human being that couldn't live, breathe, or speak without a man's permission. And the writings kind of alluded to the fact that it's because she's covered and she has no choice. And so I, <laughs> I'm the kind of person that always travels the path least traveled. <laughs> so I said, let me cover up and see if that's true. Hmm. I just challenged myself. Hmm. I surprised my dad. I surprised my mom. I surprised my whole family when I decided to cover because they didn't know why I was doing it. In fact, I didn't even know. It was just kind of a on the spot kind of a decision that I quickly made and then I stuck to it. And the process of choosing to wear it and sticking to it for now more than, gosh, 20 some years, I'm old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what it has done to me, contrary to the narrative that I was hearing and reading, the scarf as a woman, you know, as a Muslim woman and a woman of color growing up in America and a school that was predominantly white, privileged kids. You know, my classmates at the University of Virginia were middle to upper class white students, mostly from the South. I mean, because Virginia is still considered kind of a, a border state. We're not the North, we're not the South, but we're both. <laughs> and then to choose to, I already look different. I al already had an accent, but then to choose to dress differently and look even more differently, what it did to me was filter my friends versus my, the mm. people who didn't care about me. The people who stuck around with me continue to remain my friends even today. But the covering also then kind of forced me individually as a woman that looked different to speak up. Mm -hmm. So my voice became elevated after putting this piece of scarf on. And this is, again, 19, mid-1990s. Now, I know that the environment has changed a lot in America. Many more young girls are wearing the headscarf. It's become, and it's interesting to watch some of the logos about International Women's Day. You know, the head, covered woman is part of that image. In the 1990s, that was not the case. And so, so I made a choice in the time where it was difficult, but I think subconsciously, and this is where my spiritual aspect comes in. I think I was preparing myself to go to Afghanistan hmm. without realizing it. And the reason I say that, because when I returned back in 2003 uh, for the first time as an adult, because I chose to work in a conservative society where women were wearing burqas, I mean, I'm too covered for a typical American society or typical women in, in America, right? But take me, transplant me to, to Kandahar, uh -huh. where women are all wearing burqas. I'm, I'm not covered enough. Mm. And so this small headscarf around my head with wearing relatively loose clothes, but Western clothes, is too provocative for a society like Kandahar. And so having this foundation already where I was already used to covering more, made it so easy, made the transition so easy for me to just add on a few more layers of loose clothing and make my scarf a bigger scarf than it already is when I landed in Kandahar. And all the way to the fact that for 20 years, my service and my, my work in Afghanistan and my dress code has helped me along the way to the point where on the fifth day after the fall, of the Republic of Afghanistan. The Taliban administration invited me to come meet the education commission at the ministry 
because they knew I was still in country. I did not flee Afghanistan the day of the fall or the you know the night after the fall. I was still on the ground and they knew of my presence. They extended an invitation and I actually took the invitation and went and met with them. It was fearful, but I'm so glad I did because during that 4-hour meeting, different layers of meetings after meetings, but that 4-hour time with the Taliban I was asked one question by one of the members of the five-member Education Commission delegation. And he said to me, we know that you've grown up in America, yet we've followed your dress code, watching you as you were minister, and you were, you've dressed very conservatively in line with the Sharia law and the, you know, and the Islamic code of dressing. How is it that you, growing up in America and you've been able to observe the traditional dress code? And that was the perfect opportunity for me to explain to him. I said, sir, with all due respect, please know that everybody and anybody growing up in a country in your eyes that is godless, America, I said, I want you to know that I was born a Muslim in this country forced out with my family because of the wars and destruction that has plagued our country for for since my birth time i said i grew up as a strong muslim woman in a home of muslims educated in a university which allowed me to study my own religion so i have a degree in islamic religion but comparative religion really and i said as a woman i chose to wear the hijab because i know that that's part of my religious teaching I mean I didn't tell them about the feminist aspect of it. <laughs> <laughs> because later on I do I do realize that there is a spiritual reason behind why conservative dressing is prescribed in the religion. And I I do believe in that today. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not saying that every woman has to dress the way a religion or I prescribe to 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 dress. However, I see the benefits of what can conservative dressing do and what are the opportunities that conservative dressing can allow women and so when i explained that to him and i and i added one more element to it i said don't think that i am dressed conservatively only in afghanistan because if you look at my pictures from events and programs and things that i'm participated in even in america i said i've always dressed conservatively and I cover my head even in America. And then I concluded to him saying, you know, I actually feel much more spiritual when I'm in America than when I'm in Afghanistan. And he looked at me, he said, how so? And I said, because in America, I have the choice to be who I am here. I'm forced to be, you know, who I have to be. And he just, at the end, of that response, he had no words. He just, it was a silent moment of, and I hope I've gotten through him to make him understand that the stereotypes that exist in America mm-hmm. against a certain people or certain practices, similarly stereotypes exist all over the world against what America is like. Mm. And I think through my small body and my dress and the choice of my dress, I've been able to bridge that gap Mm -hmm. 
to make, you know, to serve as a bridge of understanding both for this culture and that culture, that just because you're covered, you have a scarf on your head does not mean that you can't think that you're any less of a human being and vice versa on the other aspect of it. You know, I want to be able to help people understand in that part of the world that just because a woman doesn't have a headscarf on her head doesn't mean that she's a woman of loose values. And I think it's going to, it's going to take, I don't want to say sacrifices, but it's going to take efforts at many different levels for people to have that understanding. And, and I'm blessed to have my scarf serve as that symbol uh, to start conversations because quite honestly, I, I travel a lot. I speak a lot um, here in America and globally. And in America, I've noticed that oftentimes people are surprised by the fact that I speak English, I can analyze, I can critically think, I can understand questions, <laughs> and I can talk about a, you know, a variety of different topics with looking like an oppressed, quiet, uneducated woman just because I choose to wear the heads up. So it's, it's a shock. It's a shock therapy, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy to be able to do that with a piece of cloth. Well, that's really interesting that there are so many meanings that are placed on this piece of cloth and you decide what you want it to mean, but then other people bring their own expectations of what it means. Absolutely. Because it's it's visual, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's like that notion of picture speaks a thousand words. Mm -hmm. and I almost want to extend that to say my headscarf speaks maybe 10,000 words. And yet, I don't think there are enough conversations. There's conversations out there, but I think there's not enough conversations out there, both in the academia, in the social sphere, to really discuss what this means. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly enough, with the, you know, the women's revolution activities in Iran, for example, and I'm comparing the conversations now, women actively choosing to throw the headscarf off because it's forced on them. Right. And yet I see a lot of Iranian women, whether they're for the scarf or against the scarf, but they're making the distinction. This has nothing to do with the religion. It is our political statement that you can't force this upon us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It speaks about 10,000 words in a variety of different languages. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, being a multilingual, uh -huh. maybe 10,000 is not even enough. <laughs> So in this environment where, you know, you said that women are mostly within Kandahar living in, you know, large family groups, but not necessarily going out and throwing on a scarf the way that I might throw on a scarf. Where do people traditionally use the embroidery that they're creating? Mm -hmm. Are women embroidering their burqas that way or is it the something? Burka, so the burqa traditionally... Mm -hmm. The burqa was heavily embroidered. So the little mesh that you see around the eye, there are little holes, that's actually a very particular type of an embroidery where the women cut the, the oh. base threads and then they embroidered that square okay. out of the remaining threads. And so, the, and, and unfortunately, that's a dying art because it's very, very complicated to do. And plus, women are no longer making their burqas. So believe it or not, burqas are now made in China. I <laughs> know, <laughs> I know. They are. They're, they've become quite cheap. They're 100% 100 poly, 100 polyester right now. And you can get a burqa for as cheap as 
you know, three to five dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the olden times when burqas were actually handmade and hand embroidered by women, what the women would actually do or young women is by the time they knew that they were becoming of adolescent age, they would embroider up the entire front. So the hat, mm-hmm. there's a hat piece component to it that's completely embroidered. Then the 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 fabric that is kind of coming down attached to the hat down to your torso, that entire front part is completely embroidered with the mesh around the eyes. But then the rest of the burqa fabric, the 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 pleated remaining fabric, which kind of goes from your you know, right ear all the way to your left ear. And that's the big piece of fabric that just covers your whole body. That fabric was never uh, embroidered because mm-hmm. it's just, it's huge and it required pleating. And in the olden days, women would actually take their burqas to be dyed every year. And in fact, the current local market place in Kandahar, which is called Rangrezan, it never was a women's market in that uh, regard, but Rangrezan means place where coloring happens. Mm-hmm. And this was the spot where women would go and take their burqas, whether white initially after finishing the embroidery, and it was on a silk fabric. So burqas initially were made on silk fabrics. Mm-hmm. And then after the embroidery was completed, they would go and have the burqa be dyed in that light blue color. Mm -hmm. But because it was natural dyes, over a year or two, the the natural dye would fade out. Mm -hmm. And so that they would go and re-dye it. But washing the burqa, taking care of the burqa was quite an ordeal. I mean, it it was a thing to do. And so that's how women used to adorn themselves. Now that the burqas are... 100% 100% polyester, machine-made in China, uh, they no longer have to do that. No no woman ever makes, in fact, in the past 20 years, I've never heard of a woman making a burqa again or like mm-hmm. embroidering a burqa. What they've done then, since now they're no longer making their own burqas, they make bridal trousseaus, mm-hmm. which is a thing of the South. If you're marrying your daughter, and I don't care how rich you are or how poor you are, your daughter must take to her home, to her new home, a trousseau that includes bed sheets, pillow covers, decorative pieces for the room. And it could, you know, because natural fibers are close to impossible to be found in the local market now, it's synthetic fabrics with beautiful hand embroidery. And if you're a poor family, you have your own girl do it or girls do it. Uh, because you can't afford to commission this work out. But if you're a rich family, you still need the bridal trousseau, but your girl's not going to do it. So you're going to commission it out to either Kandahar Treasure yeah. <laughs> embroiders and or find another embroiderer in your neighborhood who can do it for you. So the bridal trousseaus, and then almost nine months to 12 months later, a baby's being born because that's what's expected. Mm-hmm. You get right. married, you have a baby within a year. And the first set of baby set uh, the bedding, the clothing, that's also requirement, you know, to be finished and to take this. So the mother of the bride, the mother of the girl who got married is required to, once the baby's coming, to take this whole set of gifts all embroidered. So that's how the women continue the embroidering. Then with older women, Kandahari women still wear this white, 
almost like the Chinese like or Asian like where you have the white trousers and then a shirt of different color, different fabrics on top. We don't make it the same style where it's a, you know, slim, long uh, shirt, but more ruffled shirt of any fabric. But the pants are almost always white on white embroidery trousers, basically, that women wear. And if you're rich enough and you can afford a 100% silk white chiffon, you would add white embroidery to that too. So the elegant look of a Kandahari woman is to have a white silk chiffon embroidered on her head, a dress that could be anything, and then the pants that are white on white. My mother went to the extent where she said, I'm going to have an embroidered dress too. So she took, she loves black. So she took a black Georgette fabric Mm -hmm. and she asked the women to do little black on black motifs of embroidery all over the fabric. And then she inserted a small, tiny black bead in the middle of the floral motif that she had Mm -hmm. asked them to do. And she prepared this dress that she wore with her white embroidered trousers and a white embroidered silk chiffon at my cousin's wedding in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And the whole entire wedding, the women were just coming and just mesmerized by her creation saying, oh my God, you even embroidered your shirt. <laughs> so it's a very, it's, you know, the, the skill and the art continues to be adorned by women, mostly the elderly in the clothing. Young ones are not necessarily wearing it on a daily basis. Some young girls might for a special occasion make a handmade you know, embroidered set of clothes for themselves, but it's not your everyday because the competition of machine-made, glittery, very fancy looking dresses that are imports from India, China, Pakistan, um, they've infiltrated the market. And so it's very hard to compete with that because embroidery is still very expensive. And in a country where many people can't even afford food now, mm-hmm. they're going to be looking for cheap items and not right. your unique, one-of-a-kind hand embroidered pieces. That is so beautifully universal. The importance of special cloth to take with you to a new home. So your wedding trousseau is, I mean, I can think of cultures all over that have that and special clothing for a new baby. Any kind of culture, no matter where you are in the world, I think has those sort of traditions. It's a very human thing. You know, the the swaddling of babies Mm -hmm. is very much intact in our culture. In fact, we swaddle babies. My sisters and I make fun of it because when I gave birth to Zara and she was little, she was only 20 days old when I went back to Kandahar. And I refused to swaddle her with like the traditional, basically, you know, you've embroidered this square piece of fabric that you wrap the baby in, and then you take a a belt almost, a belt that you've embroidered about two inches wide, and then you wrap the baby with that (laughs) belt all the way down to her feet. So it's almost like a log of a a swaddled baby that you have to hold. But I refused to do that because I was like, that's not kind to the poor baby who has to be stuck in this one position. And a lot of the elderly women uh, ridiculed me. Mm-hmm. They said, oh, you Americanized woman, you don't understand. This is not how you raise a baby. This is not how you, you know, swaddle a baby. Because I would just do it in fabrics, soft cottons. Mm-hmm. And she would just open herself up by the time she woke <laughs> up. And so I was always told, she's not going to have a fit body. <laughs> but but it was funny just to watch babies be swaddled in these embroidered pieces. And still to this day, 
so we're five sisters and we have a sister in Canada who is blessed with seven children. Two of her daughters are married and she bought a baby bedding set from Kandahar Treasure to gift her daughters in Canada. Uh So even though we've moved outside of Kandahar, the traditional families still carry on the tradition of giving gifts to babies that are embroidered. And your daughter grew up fine. My daughter is perfectly fine. Um, (laughs) What I did instead is, so I didn't swaddle her with an embroidered bedding or embroidered uh, swaddle piece. I did adorn, and to this day, I still make very nice clothing that has embroidery on it. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a traditional Kandahari ruffled embroidery, but even as a baby, she would always have these little summer dresses. Again, it's innovation, it's creativity, where Kandahar is hot. Our average summer days are well over 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And so because she was a baby, I could make little cotton dresses with specks of embroidery or lots of embroidery on it and then make it look cute and nice. Mm -hmm. So dresses that would look like they had been imported from China or, or India or whatever, but had our traditional embroidery on it. And so whenever I would go to weddings or ceremonies or events, uh, parties of women, and they would see Zara wearing those clothes, the women would all, it it was always a buzzword. It was always like, oh, look, she's wearing another one. And if if sometimes I didn't have Zara wearing, you know, embroidered things, then it almost raised the question too among the women, oh, why why isn't she wearing an embroidered dress today? (laughs) (laughs) So it was fun to to watch that and, and, and go through that. So if women aren't embroidering their burkas anymore and they're making basically trousseaus and baby items, does that mean that you really can't see this beautiful work anywhere out in public? Oh, no, you do. <laughs> no, you do. The women are very strategic. So as they're no longer publicly displaying their talent through their burkas, they have heavily transitioned to embroidering their men's tunics and men. These could be sons, these could be brothers, husbands, uh, fathers, uncles. So the men of Kandahar actually wear a lot more of the finest hand embroidery of hamak. Mm -hmm. And it's a perfect pace because what the, the men's tunics, the front of the torso of the men's tunics have full embroidery with patches of it on the sleeves. And then some women go as far as putting embroidery even on the so not the skirt part of the shirt but more like the slits Mm, so they want to differentiate because the the skirt would be more a woman-like attire which they don't want to associate their men with with women but having embroidery around the slit is just was another addition to beautifying the dress of the men and then men also in kandahar carry these large scarves called patus Mm -hmm. which are used both as decorative pieces but also more functional pieces where they take their patus. So it's a Muslim society and men and women pray five times a day and men are out and about. They might not be near a mosque or they might not be in a home, clean environment to prepare themselves to pray. So the patu allows them to, no matter where they are Mm -hmm. on any terrain across the city or the country, they just take their clean patu, put it on the ground, and pray on it. Mm-hmm. So this embroidered large scarf also becomes a prayer mat 
for a lot of the men. And it's interesting because the men will often wear these new embroidered pieces, usually around the two main uh, celebrations of Eid. One is right after Ramadan and the other one's after the pilgrimage of Hajj. But in addition to those two annual celebrations, wedding attires for men mm. are a huge display of your creative designs. So an average man getting married will have at least three new pairs. One the night before the wedding mm -hmm. for the henna night, one the night of the wedding, and usually the night of the wedding is just white on white embroidery. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is the day after where the groom is required to wear a new embroidered piece of cloth or, or clothes and then go to the mother-in-law's house or father-in-law's house to pay his respect. Oh, I see. Uh, for, you know, for, for allowing the family to marry their daughter to him. He doesn't take his wife. He goes alone, but he has to have an embroidered tunic. So there's quite a large market for that industry. The problem with that is because the embroidery is so heavy and so much, most of these pieces, especially for an adult size tunic, it takes anywhere from four to six months to complete. Wow. And locally, we've been trying to figure out how to compensate women enough for it. Mm -hmm. And there's no way. If we could actually calculate the amount of work that's put into these men's clothing pieces and actually compensate the women for it, they would become completely unaffordable in the local market. But because it's an art that everybody uses and utilizes, the women barely make enough making this, but it's more, I think they continue to make it because it's a form of love and expression mm -hmm. and a way for them to find the space to express their art. Yeah. And then the men judge it. The men judge it. The men say, without mentioning a name, because we don't, you know, yeah. culturally, you don't mention somebody else's sister's wife, mother, anybody, woman's name. You don't mention women's names in public. However, you do say if there's a group of three men sitting and one is wearing a very, very beautiful embroidered piece, the other two might comment on, bless the fingers of the women of your family who've created this piece. So there is that element of a cultural recognition mm -hmm. for this art and men see it, men recognize quality without ever seeing the artist wow. behind it. That's amazing. And, I, and this is the first time I actually said this thing about the guys. Because mm -hmm. I, I think we don't, we don't pay enough attention to the elements of what makes art and culture and crafts part of a social reality, right? Right. I think part of what Kandahar Treasure is trying to do by continuing to sustain its work, its women, is that politics come and go. Mm -hmm. You know, there's good days and then there's bad days. And, and particularly with Afghanistan, the transitions have been so many, mm -hmm. at least in my, all my lifetime, which is 46 years now, that I think for me personally, it gives me sanity to focus on something that, I don't mean any pun intended on this, but it's a thread that goes throughout the various many transitions because women have been embroidering forever and they're continuing to embroider. And what is also very, what is also sad is women who were going to school, you know, in the past 20 years, now they're no longer able to 
So they're now reverting back to, all right, if I can't continue my education, I'm going to go back to my needle and thread. So it is that expression, although you kind of feel hurt by saying, why must a woman be forced to do that? And I hope that thread and needle is not a something that you just come back to whenever all else fails, you come. But in a way, it is that, right? It's that comfort, safe space, mm-hmm. safe work that when things are so bad mm-hmm. around you, you find peace back and returning back to something that you own, that mm-hmm. you have complete control over, and you busy yourself with that. So even psychologically, a lot of the women in this past visit, they said, I said, Why, what, what keeps you going? Why are you doing this? I mean, the financial aspect is one, obviously, sure. that's an actual real need. But then they said, I don't want to think about all the negativity mm-hmm. around me. And so when I focus and concentrate on my embroidery and embroidering, it just makes me focus on all the beauty that I can create. Mm-hmm. And I think that's powerful. That's incredibly powerful. Absolutely. And I feel really privileged that although there's really almost nothing I can do about the situation on the ground, I can make a very small contribution to the lives of these women by purchasing something from Kandahar Treasures. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Angina, thank you so much. I could talk to you for hours and hours, but I'd better let you go. You're now, speaking of education, you are now teaching in a graduate program in the United States. So the education thread continues. And I should let you get back to it. But thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. And I'm honored, actually, to be teaching at a global institution called Thunderbird School of Global Management, which is part of Arizona State University. And we teach global leaders entrepreneurial or entrepreneurship business skills, trade skills, to do things differently and better. And I'm proud to say that Kandahar Treasure actually resulted from a three-week mini training that I received here at Thunderbird in 2005. And so, as I stated earlier, the political transitions happen and go. Policies Mm -hmm. change. Once upon a time, there was a lot of interest to be working with Afghanistan, and now there's no interest in working with Afghanistan. But the thread of the embroidery and the business and the education that enabled me to start this work continues. And who knows what the future holds for all of us. So thank you very much for your time and to all the listeners. And I hope that people can get some inspiration from learning about and listening to the women who are embroidering, who are using a thread and a needle to change their future through the fine stitches that they're creating. And I'm I'm hopeful for a different future for Afghanistan. And hopefully in my lifetime, I get to see it. Thanks to Trinway Silks for sponsoring this episode. Thank you for listening to the Long Thread Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again. Thanks again.